resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. We recently put on a conference at High Point Church called Sexuality Everywhere. We were looking at the question, how can we glorify Jesus as sexual beings? In this breakout from the conference, you're going to hear from Nick Gibson as he talks about love in the vice, gospel love towards LGBTQ neighbors while bearing intimidation and scorn. Thanks for listening. Okay, just, just so everybody knows, right now you are in the second listing of the Breakout One, Love and the Vice, Gospel, Love Towards LGBTQ Neighbors While Bearing Intimidation Scorn with Nick Gibson. That's where you are right now. So if you don't intend to be here, then you should go to the other place you intend to be. So, yeah. All right, so welcome everybody. Glad that you're here for our first breakout of the conference. As Nick said, this is Love in the Vice. And in case you weren't here last night to hear who our speaker is, I'm just going to give a brief introduction to him. So Nick Gibson has been the pastor here for the last eight years at High Point, And he is the author of three books, the latest of which is Substance, Becoming Oaks of Righteousness in a World of Vapor, which you can find at the resource table out in the lobby. I've personally been significantly impacted by Nick's teaching and how he brings together truth from scripture and very um, easily applying it to what is going on in our lives so that we can understand it. And so without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Nick. Thanks, sir. Okay. We go till 11.25. You agree, right? All right, hey everybody. Um, I'm going to try to um, end with some extra time just because, oh great, that sounds good. Um, whoever's our tech guy, or Jill, whoever, our tech woman. So uh, what we're going to talk about this morning is what I've entitled Love and the Vice, which um, from a practically emotional perspective, Lori already kind of worked on some of the stuff in terms of her own life of that if you try as best as you can to be humbly, gospel-centered, historically, orthodoxly biblical about what human sexuality is supposed to look like, you are going to be, you're going to take fire from both sides. You're going to take friendly fire from the church, from people who are your brothers and sisters. They will be with you in heaven. God loves them. They are probably wonderful people, at least as nice as you. They're not to be scorned by you. And, um, but they're going to shoot at you. Like, they're going to be like, you're, you're, you're giving up the side, man. Or like, the, or they'll say things probably a lot meaner than that. Um, and from the LGBTQ, especially the activist wing of that community, you're going to take a lot of flack there too. Okay. And it's going to be pretty direct and with a lot of candor from their perspective. Um, and it's important to recognize that the people in the church that are going to shoot at you are not the whole church. And you shouldn't say it's the whole church, and you shouldn't beat up on the church. One of the things that is a real problem is when Christians say, well, the church is like this, and the church is like that. Look, you're, dude, you're talking about the bride of Christ. You need to watch it, okay? Like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that, listen, God is the only one who gets to call the church a whore, okay? Not you. All right, Ezekiel, that's his doing. But, like, you don't get to be, like, Ezekiel 23 guy, okay? Like, 
the church is the bride of Christ, and it's our job to serve and love the bride of Christ until she is spotless and pure and ready for her wedding day, and to seek to grow in godliness ourselves so that we can be part of that church, one of its living stones, to quote First Peter. Okay, but there's going to be a lot of misguidedness in the church. Okay, the church is full of these fallen humans that have all the same issues as humanity, and you're going to take fire from them. Okay, and then secondly, you're going to take a lot of fire. And so don't, also don't confuse. Are we going to, okay. Also, you don't want to confuse LGBTQ people with LGBTQ advocacy. Okay, I cannot tell you how many gay, lesbian, transgender folks I've sat down with and talked with about this stuff and when I say, look, the LGBTQ, like, public people say this, like, is that how you feel? I actually have not had one person, even people in gay advocacy, say, yeah, that's exactly how we feel. A lot of it comes from the fact that one of the things that you forget, because here's what evangelical Christians know, okay, or biblical orthodox Christians. What we know is, is that LGBTQ people have a disproportionate access and control in the levers of power in America. Okay, we know that. We know it's obvious, okay? What we forget is they're like 3% of people, right? They're like Jews. Like, no matter how good you have it at this moment, you could get killed in 20 years, right? Like, they, and they know that. They know that, like, the wave is in their direction right now, and that's cool, but, like, things can change, man, and, like, you can imagine how they feel, because remember, most people think with their feelings. Christians and gay people think with their feelings. Just think how you would feel to have our good president elected and some of the people that think that they get to talk for him on Twitter, right? And how you would feel. You would feel scared, right? You'd, be, you'd feel about the same as if a Christian baker in Colorado had to go all the way to the Supreme Court for the simple right not to make a cake for somebody he jolly well didn't want to. Do you understand? And they also know that something like 27% of Americans label themselves evangelical Christians. That feels like a pretty good block to them. So they think that we're just a bunch of whiners when we say, oh, you know, you're hurting our feelings and like doing and, and taking away our rights, which is true. But like it it kind of feels like the varsity team complaining about playing the modified squad a little bit. You know, it just it like it doesn't compute. And for like if you put yourselves in other people's shoes, it's pretty easy to see why they would think that, right? But I've had conversations with dozens and dozens of gay and lesbian folks and some folks that engage in gay and lesbian lobby and they'll, they'll tell you, look, no, I, we don't think this badly about you, but like there are certain things that are politically necessary that we have to do to make sure things go in the right direction. It's not personal, but this is what we, we feel like we have to do. And I'm like, well, it's immoral. You realize, you realize it's immoral. And they're like, sort of, but I don't believe in morality like you. You know, it, because generally speaking, Th that wing of things, they don't believe in a historically essentialist kind of ethics. They believe in a, that ethics are what, what most likely leads to good outcomes. And therefore, it, they don't believe that the ends just justify the means like a Marxist would. M most of them. But they believe that like you should do the things you think are going to get you what you want. And if that seems wrong in the immediate step, well, that's just too bad. You have to do it, which is a, kind of how a lot of church people live, even if that's not how they talk. Okay, so okay, so let's get into what we're going to talk about today more specifically and orderly, instead of a series of my rants. Okay, yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Yeah, maybe Jill can work on that or somebody, but I do not know how to do that intentionally. Okay. So um, I'll try to move them like a little bit further away. So here's the three things I want to look at this morning. One is, um, it is correct and necessary to hold to a Christian sexual orthodox view. Um, and that um, that is provided that it is through the whole of Scripture in a deep way. One of the things that hurts the biblical Christian historical position on sexuality is when we hold a biblical position on certain things in a shallow way. This is where, we, this is where LGBT people got the idea that Christians believe that homosexuality is the grossest sin. That's biblically preposterous. There's no way to be able to get back that. Peter Kreef says about sexual sin in general. Because also, you, you would even get, if you just take LGBTQ stuff out of it, just sexual sin. That looking at pornography or fornicating or committing adultery, that those are the worst sins, right? That's biblically preposterous. I mean, you, you literally have to like sharpie marker out whole verses and sections of your Bible, pay no attention to sin lists in the Bible to get that idea. Here's, here's why we really believe that, okay? And we would know this if we had a good, deep doctrine of sin. We tend to demonize sins. We are not afraid that we are going to commit. Okay? So if you don't think you're going to commit adultery, you think adultery is like the worst sin possible. Like, those adulterers, they're terrible, right? Any sin that you think you could possibly commit, you're like, well, it's bad. But it's understandable in certain situations. Like we should, you know. What I mean? Secondly, I'm gonna get into that when we get to the point. Okay. So two, love is a mandate, and that mandate includes LGBT people, and we need to talk about how we can do that better. And then third, we need to grow deeper and stronger so the weight of bigotry and scorn doesn't trouble us, and so we can turn its tide. Okay. So the definition. Okay. So sometimes we throw around the words. Um, prejudice, bigotry, and racism as though they're all the same word, okay? Or in this case, racism would be, we would, we would put homophobia in for racism, okay? So let's get clear on those definitions. Prejudice means literally what it etymologically means. It is to prejudge. It is to judge before it is reasonable to make judgment, okay? Now, part of the problem with prejudice is that the human brain is wired to automatically do it. Okay, there are, there's literally too much that you don't know in the world, and you have to make a thousand predecisions, and your brain can't even process all the data that you even have, much less the data that you don't have. And so your mind is making thousands and thousands and thousands of prejudgment decisions every single day, all the time about everything. Okay, and so prejudice is when that tendency is not checked in the human soul, and we allow it to run freely wherever it wants to, and especially in places where we're uncomfortable, so that we allow ourselves to freely prejudge people, and we, we aren't really open to that being changed. The feeling of prejudice, prejudging people, is you automatically do it with every human being that you ever meet, okay? You will always prejudge every human being you will ever meet. You'll read their body language, you'll read their eye contact, you'll read how well-dressed they are or aren't, how well they've shaved or haven't, how well they've bathed or not, how they smell. You'll, you'll even take in their pheromone levels without even knowing it, and your mind, without even conscious thought, will prejudge them. That happens every time you see or meet any human being. It's a biological necessity. The question is, what will your conscious mind do with that information? Okay. Second, bigotry. 
Bigotry is the unwillingness to change a position when you know darn well you should have by now. Right? Bigotry is when you, you have a view that's wrong and you have received plenty of information that if you weren't being a stubborn idiot, you would change. But you won't. Okay? That's, that's what bigotry is. That's the definition of bigotry. And homophobia or racism is the belief in the, in the inherent superiority of something and the inherent inferiority of something in the, in the space of racism. In terms of homophobia, it is the inherent fear of something, right? Which is part of the issue is, is that the word homophobia gets used very loosely, right? Anything that's not affirming is homophobic, which is, of course, an evisceration of the word and a, the logical fallacy of equivocation, which we won't get into right now, but it's just using the same word to mean multiple things. The word homophobia is used to mean literally, you're afraid of gayness and you believe in things I don't like in relation to gayness. And it doesn't mean both of those things. And sometimes, so one of the, sometimes I will call people attacking me about homophobia, I will say, you're engaging in bigotry because you know better than to call somebody who objects to your views. On, in ways that are not fear, you know better than to call me a homophobe. But you're doing it anyway, and you should stop doing it. However, I forget what it's called in Judaism. There's a very strong, there's like a word in Judaism for this, that um, there's a strong ethic that you never intentionally humiliate somebody else publicly. And I, I think that they really get that from the Bible, and it's part of our Bible. And I, whenever you push back on somebody like that. So from the pulpit, when I refer to some of these things as bigotry, I don't ever name anybody's name. I will, I will talk about a dynamic, and then I will say, when people do that, that's bigotry. And then I will try to make sure that I give a moderate number, number of Christian examples if I'm going to give non-Christian examples so that we don't grow self-righteous and people don't, who are listening don't hear it as a self-righteous message. Does that make sense? All right. And then we'll do the third thing. I, mean, I need to keep going because I'm kind of mixing these up. Okay, the first thing is, it is correct and necessary to hold to Christian sexual orthodoxy, provided it's through a whole, the whole of Scripture in a deep way. Now, um, one of the ways that Graham Cole sums this up, I think this is the best one-sentence summary of the Christian view on um, homosexuality and same-sex attraction in the LBG, LGBT phenomenon in human beings is that the historic Christian and biblical position is that homosexual desire, homosexual sex is sinful, and homosexual desires are disordered desires. Now, that, what that means is this, basically, that when you read in the Bible about sexual immorality in relationship to LGBTQ action or experience, that that's, that's what it seems to say, and what I'm telling you is that's what it means. Now, since about 1980 in earnest, there have been a whole spate of books and lectures and public figures who have essentially tried to say, the Bible doesn't really mean what it seems to say on these issues, either because it never did, it was on a trajectory all along, so that now we would be pro-gay or affirming is the language, right? Or that what it's talking about in the historical context is not meaningfully the same thing as what we're talking about in the present context. Now, 
it would, it would take me a couple of hours to actually go through all those arguments. Okay, On the Engage and Equip podcast, I'll, I'll go to resources in just a minute, there are a couple of podcasts that actually talk about the arguments themselves and like why they argue certain things and why that's not right. Okay, there's, And there's a bunch of resources out there about that. The, the point is, you need to be straight on these issues. I mean that in the logical sense. You need to have them clear. And, but you also need to realize that when, when other people, whether Christians or non-Christians, LGBT or not, don't agree, don't assume it's out of bad faith. Okay? You probably know other Christians who hold theological views that you believe are biblically wrong, and you try to believe that it's not out of bad faith, right? So if you're a Calvinist and you have an Arminian friend, you might be like, well, they're wrong, but like, you know, they're probably trying. Or uh, in this room, right in this room right now, in our partner churches, there are complementarian churches and egalitarian churches. Churches that believe there are actual gender differences between men and women in marriage and in the church, and people who don't believe that there are any in the church, but yes in marriage, or neither in marriage nor the church. Just right in this room. And one of the things we tend to do as we partner with each other is assume that those differences are in good faith. Okay? Now, it is very difficult sometimes to assume that differences about this are in good faith, especially when the sexual ethic is so central to the Bible. One of the things Preston Sprinkle says is he was, when he was struggling with this, he talked to one of his friends in, who was a theologian, and the guy was like, Preston... Like, I get that there's a lot of pressure to change our views on this, but, like, just think about the Bible like you've read the whole thing. Like, do you get the idea anywhere, like on any page, anywhere in the entire Bible, that the sexual ethic isn't absolutely central, foundational, and actually salvationally mandatory? And Sprinkle was like, he thought, when he thought about it from that perspective, he realized, no, actually, like, in almost all the places where the Bible says, people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God that an unrepentant personal devotion to activity in these things will produce damnation, right? Now, there's a lot of other sins besides sexual sins that make those lists. But sexual sin in particular always makes those lists, right? This, this, sexuality and sexual, sexual ethics are not peripheral to Christian faith. And that's partly because sexuality is the second most foundational thing about being a human. Like, if you look at the Bible, we are made in God's image, and then we are made male and female, and those are the first and the two most important things said about human beings. And to sin against our humanity is the first greatest, most terrible thing. And then to sin against our sexuality, not just because of that, but also because sexual sins have a way of perpetrating themselves and, to use a fertility pun, reproducing. Like it says in 1 Corinthians, the person who sins sexually doesn't just sin against themselves. They sin against at least one other person, right? And the problem with that is, is that when you sin sexually, it almost always creates human dysfunction, which means both people carry those dysfunctions to the next people they sin sexually with or just are with sexually. And so the dysfunction that sexual dysfunction creates spreads and spreads and spreads like a spiritual pathogen, which is one of the reasons why God has such strict and profound and straightforward rules and direction about it. Does that make sense? Now, one of the people that I, I like to talk about when we talk about this is a, is a person named John Boswell. Now, John Boswell is one of the people that evangelicals who have studied this stuff love to hate. And I, I love to hate John Boswell, and I've loved more, more past tense now 
Because when I first encountered his writings, I was at college and I had a like gay minister yelling at me, telling me I was a bigot as a sophomore in college because I didn't agree with the clear teaching of the Bible according to John Boswell and blah, 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 blah. He's a scholar from Yale. He knows 15 ancient languages. How dare you disagree with him? And I was like, because it's full of... Never mind. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, did. I just thought like that he w- his work was a weapon people hit me in the face with, right? But over time, like I, like I read uh, parts of his books and some of his arguments, but then I actually read a little bit about him. So Boswell was a daily communicant Roman Catholic. He went to church and he got communion every single day. He agreed with the doctrines of the church on almost everything. He, okay, I, I'm going to psychoanalyze him now a little bit. He, because he had no way of overcoming his, same, his profound same-sex sexual attractions, he, he believed, he came to believe that the Adelphios, I can't remember the exact word for it, but there's, there is a, the love bonding ceremony of the ancient church. Now, it was basically what would amount to, in modern times, a blood brother ceremony, where in the ancient world, the, the non-familial covenantal relationship between men was an extraordinarily important thing. Okay, remember, when we're all rich, okay, we have a hard time understanding what it's like to not be rich. To think, like, if something happens to you, you will go tell your health insurance to pay for it. If something happens to your job, you'll go to your bank account. If something bad happens with your job, you might even have to dip into your retirement. Like, you've got people, you've got things. Like, if there's a, fa- if there, like, if there's a famine, like, when was the last time you remember there being a famine? Right? Has anybody had to eat dirt to fill their stomachs because they were starving to death? Right? Like, we have no idea what human life has been like for most of humanity's life. So for hundreds of years in the Christian church, human relationships had much stronger bonds. And some of those bonds were formalized. And the church actually celebrated a bonding right between men that made people love brothers. Which is similar to modern day blood blood brothers. Like you and I will be friends forever no matter what. Oftentimes it was military, but celebrated by others. And so Boswell found this, and he's like, look, the church has celebrated gay weddings at certain times in its history. It has seen two men that loved each other, and it bonded them in a church ceremony, and they have the right to love each other. That is the closest thing there could be to a monogamous homosexual relationship, and the church has seen a way to celebrate it, and it's not just modern revisionism. He believed that very deeply, and he argued for it very strongly. I think it's 100% wrong. Okay? I think it's 100% wrong. But like, I get that. I, I think he's wrong. I don't, I'm not sure it was in bad faith. Just imagine how easily we believe things that we, we can't see any other way to fix or any other way to solve. Oops. Sorry, Jill, could you fix that for me? That was my mistake. Do you understand? And so when you encounter people who claim to be believers, especially people who say that they believe in the authority of Scripture... And yet they believe, like, the Matthew Vines take on thing that, like, as long as it's monogamous, it's cool. Don't just be like, you're this dirty apostate, okay? It may be that that view is is apostasy. I am not sure. I don't know. It could be. And if you hold that, I I would say it's a spiritually extremely dangerous view to hold. Because I don't don't think you can know. But I'm not going to be like, you apostate jerk. I'm going to be like, okay... Are you willing to look at these passages and are you willing to psychologically face together how much we want to believe something else because of how much pressure is on us? Right? We, we like to believe that we are independent thinkers and that we are independent people. But human beings are by our very nature conforming creatures. 
Okay? We, at the end of the day, are pack creatures. We want to be accepted by other people. We want to be affirmed by other people. That's why in the South, a lot of non-Christians still go to church. And in Madison, almost none do. Okay? And so it, everybody has to reckon daily with what we do and how we act and how we behave because we want to be liked, because we want to conform, because we don't want to be left on the outside of the community. And on this issue, that's part of what the vice is doing. It's squishing us. It's saying, from one side, if you don't back down on this, you will be on the outside of the community. You will be ostracized. You will be out. And, and legally speaking, we may come after your job. We may close your church. We will destroy your church's nonprofit status. You will do the marriages we say you will, and so on. And all of that is injustice. And in a tempered way, we should fight against that injustice and political and legal means that are open to us and that are moral. But we cannot let that fear affect how we think. And we cannot let that fear affect how we treat people. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, a couple things on... Um, okay, these are some, these are some resources. So we, we uh, re-put some stuff up on the Engage and Equip blog. Um, there's a big page with lots of resources on it that's on that blog. Also, in the Engage and Equip podcast, episodes 90 and 97 are sermons I've done on the question of the biblical view of sexuality, where I go through the arguments and so on. Um, two people, three people that I think are pretty faithful in helping guide us on this. Um, Sam Albury is a gay man who is a minister in the Church of England. Um, he, he blogs for the Gospel Coalition Desiring God. He's like a reformed believer. And he has a, a website called livingout.org. He wrote the, this little book, Is God Anti-Gay?, which is a great little book on that. Um, but Albury is a, is a person who personally has an LGBT orientation, walks faithfully as a believer, and is a minister and speaker. Rosaria Butterfield was a women's study queer theory professor at Syracuse University who was in a long-term lesbian relationship, um, had a lesbian, had an LGBT small group at her house every week, like complete atheist, um, and then, long story, anyway, she ultimately became a Christian and um, speaks well on these things. She's a little bit controversial because she is, um, she takes a reform position rather than a position called side B that we could talk about in Q&A if you want, about how to be Christian and in these things. But she's very helpful, I think. And then Preston Sprinkle is probably the best to like resource-wise to use with people as your church. He's like super loving. He's very sensitive. He errs on the side of sensitivity, but his views are entirely orthodox as far as I can tell. And um, I've, I went to his seminar in Michigan a little while back. He was great. Um, we would have had him here. He's just really expensive. He's awesome. But like, it's just money I don't got. Um, so if you can go to something with him, um, do it. Because he's great. Okay. Let's move on. All right. So when I said we need to hold the biblical position, I also said so long as we hold it deeply. So long as we hold it deeply. So here's three common areas where I think Christians sometimes don't hold it as deeply as we should. Okay. First is... Christians often see same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria as disordered desires, and they don't immediately add on to that like everyone else. Okay? So the Bible claims that this, this thing called the flesh, okay, like Christ, Christians argue about what, the, what sarks is all the time. What's the flesh? Because it's not literally the body. 
right? There are times in the Bible where sarks is used and it's clearly something that's internal and spiritual and not physical. Other times it's contrasted with the physical body, right? It's, it's a catch-all word for everything that's inside us that doesn't want what God wants. It is essentially a catch-all for the whole ball of wax that is all of our disordered desires. Okay, that's the flesh, right? The Bible says we're supposed to kill it. Um, Linda something, I can't remember her name, she's a staff worker at Purdue. She, she says it this way, imagine that you had 100 wine glasses and you had a, uh, like a porcelain tile, tile floor and you took each wine glass individually and you dropped it. Okay, what percentage of those wine glasses would break? 100%. What percentage of them, likely speaking, would break exactly like any other one of the 100? Zero, right? It would seem random. Right, and so she argues this way. She's like, that's what it's like to have disordered desires, both sexually and in other ways. So for example, um, my, even in my, like, my wife and I, like, how, how we're broken in how we attack people who attack us is different. Like my snide, cutting, I'm smarter than you, way to tear you a new one and make you feel stupid is different than her bossy, like aggressive way of handling things, right? We're just different. Like we just got, we're just broken a little different and both of us need to find godliness. We both need to treat people with love, listen to what they're really saying, do all that stuff, right? Sexually, it's the same way. We're all broken a little different. There's nobody here who has a... Listen, I was a virgin when I got married. I've had one lover. I've been, I've been fruitful and multiplied four times. I've been faithful to my wife. I've been in ministry for 20 years. And I've never had an indiscretion with a woman ever in any meaningful way. And my wife and I have a healthy sex life. And what we are experiencing is not, is not edenic sexual wholeness. We are experiencing the closest thing we can pull off walking with Jesus, pushing back the curse, killing the flesh, and walking into the image of God as it's remade in Christ as we possibly can. Right? And it's still a little embarrassing half the time, right? Like, that's just reality. And if we need to realize that. Otherwise, you know, we think that, like, oh, these people are sexually whole and these people aren't. No, 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 no. You can have sexual wholeness just like you can be righteous. It's a relative category. You're never going to be righteous as God. You're always going to need Jesus. Like there's no, there's no human righteousness in comparison to Jesus. But someone can still say, blessed are the righteous, and talk about what it means to be a righteous person. Christians use that word both ways all the time. We can't possibly be righteous. And in Christ, we can grow in faith and be righteous. Similarly, sexual wholeness is the same way. We can be sexually whole relatively speaking, to how bad things can be if we give ourselves to the flesh and depravity. But we're never going to have the kind of sex Adam and Eve would have had or did have before the fall. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Secondly, um, Christians often see gay sex as a terrible sin. Okay, listen. I don't know if you realize this. Do you know what it... What, they're like, you know, Romans 1, it says that, like, men leave sex with women for sex with each other and women too, right? And that's, tr that's true. And then there's that verse that says, and they receive in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Please do not pretend you know what that is. Okay, Christians have said that was AIDS or whatever. If it was AIDS, then we wouldn't have found a cure for AIDS. Okay, so like, back off. Like, well, you don't know what that is. Sin always has a due penalty in it if we give ourselves to it in fundamental idolatry and will not repent, and God gives us over to it. Every sin has its own natural consequence. It is the due penalty for our perversion. That's true, homosexuality. It's true for every sin. Literally, every sin will take you where you don't want to go, enslave you, and ultimately destroy you. 
That's why we talk about redemption and salvation. If you don't believe there's a due penalty for your perversion and a death and sin, then why do we refer to what Jesus has done as a salvation? Right? So, you know what else is in the Romans 1 list? Slanderers, the greedy, those who practice deceit, anyone who envies, anyone who loses control of their temper and wrath, gossips, people who are arrogant, people who are boastful, and anyone who disobeys their parents. I say looking at my daughter, right? My mom lives with us, so it cuts both ways. Okay. Third, it's fairly normal for Christians to often assume God will change same-sex attractions and gender dysphoria if people repent and believe and turn their life over to Jesus and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to change them if they really want to change, okay? Now, this is an extremely... I was going to do a whole session on this, and then I sort of dared not do it because I don't think Lori would have been able to come because of the flack she could have taken. It could have destroyed her ministry if somebody would have brought up she went to a speaking engagement where somebody talked about that. It's, it's like, it's one of these things you can't touch. Um, I have, I've read a ton on it. I have a whole lot to say about it. But the bottom line is this. Okay, uh, one of the bottom lines is this. It's not true that everybody who really wants their sexual orientation to change can have it change, at least by any means we now know. Okay? That's not true. And so, um, but here's the thing. If you think the Bible says it will, then that's going to like wreck your faith because like if you think the Bible says that if, if these people actually really wanted their orientation to change, it could, and then it, you find out it can't, now you've got a faith crisis. And now with that faith crisis, now you've got the social pressure where you think you're going. It's just a matter of time. It's predictable where you're going. Okay, so here's, the, here's what you need to realize. In 1 Corinthians 6, which is the passage most people quote, all right, where it says, you are these things, but you are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified, right? The question is, does any of those three words actually mean that your orientation has changed? Now, the word cleansed almost seems like it would have that implication, right? But in the context, cleanse probably means something like forgiven. That is, the moral penalty that soils us in relationship to our status of purity, our ceremonially cleanness before God, is, is restored. We're restored to a state of innocence, and we are justified. That is, God counts us as innocent and righteous in His sight, Right? And we're sanctified. That means we're changed and moved, we're freed from sin and put on the path of righteousness. Now, what is the path of righteousness for an LGBT person? Does that, must that include a change in their orientation? And the answer is, of course not, or you're all going to hell. If a, if a same-sex attracted person's orientation has to change for them to be sanctified, you are going to hell. There's no question. Because what about all the other sins? Has your greed orientation been wiped away? Because mine hasn't. Maybe I shouldn't be a pastor. Like, I keep telling my elders that, but they won't listen, right? <laughs> like, I still have a lecturer orientation, right? I, I would have sex with younger women. Absolutely. Like, that's what my flesh wants. I have that orientation. I'm an adult. I have an adulterous orientation. I have a, like, I could go on. Okay, you don't want to hear it. Like, I have tons of orientations in the flesh that still want the same sins. John Wesley said it this way. When the Spirit of God comes in, the old man or the flesh remains, but no longer reigns. 
The difference is, is that sanctification in the first point means you are free from the compulsive power of sin and you have the capacity to put the death to flesh. And whatever thing is oriented in you away from the truth of Jesus, you have the power, the direction, and the clarity to do what you are called to do, no matter how much you have to die to yourself and no matter how painful it may feel until you understand its beauty. Does that make sense? All right. So those are three areas where like, if, if you get those, like when I tell a same-sex attracted person that I believe that homosexual desires are disordered desires, they get ready to want to punch me. When I hasten to add, listen, I'm a Christian, okay? I, it's much worse than that, okay? So I, I think it's Russell Moore who says something like, you think our, you think our beliefs are crazy? You think our Christian beliefs are crazy? Listen, they're way crazier than you think they are. I believe a man, I believe a tattooed man on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth is going to come down and like bring the world to a reckoning. Like, I, my, what I believe are way crazier than you think they are, right? So, but, what, but one of the things like that I, I hate that is I, as I say, look, I... I believe that all human orientations are disordered. There is no orientation among human beings in which our orientation is not disordered. Zero. I don't believe that any human being has a non-disordered sexual orientation. There is no such thing as that. There are some that have been more remade in the image of God through the redemptive power of the cross and the Spirit and that are closer, they've pushed back more of the flesh and the curse, and they've walked more into the blessing of God, and God has reformed it more. But I think that you can do that with all kinds of different orientations, even the ones that seem incredibly stubborn. Does that make sense? I hope that's true, because I have a philandering heart. And if that's not true, I'm not going to make it. And I'm going to make it. You understand? Okay, so let's move on. Does this work? Here we go. Oh, cool. Okay. Let's go back. Okay. If we believe the gospel in those deeper ways, right, it'll have two effects. One is we won't hurt our relationships with LGBT people as much because we won't say idiotically simplistic things that bother the heck out of them. Okay? And what you need to know is that within... So LGBT people have their own religion, if they are part of the, the advocacy wing, there is a secular religion within the LGBT group. So, for example, teens who commit suicide, that, those are the saints of the LGBT religion. Everything is done under the, like, the belief and the, the, like, the veneration of those people, which is right. Like If you believe what they believe, that's who should be the saints. And you should take their death as like, inspiring for how you should behave in the present. I'm not saying that. I'm not ridiculing them. I'm saying that it makes sense. That's who your saints would be. That would be your matriology, so to speak, right? And so, they are the martyrs, right? So, like, I looked at, like, Augustine and Tertullian and, like, Bonhoeffer, right? They look to people who, like, have given their lives or have lost their lives in the pain or person. See, because, like, if you're a, a gay teen and you kill yourself, why did you kill yourself? Well, within the narrative of the LGBT community, it was because of the oppression put on you. Therefore, you're a martyr, right? Do you see? Right, that's, if they're right about why the person feels so bad, then they would be right to call them a certain kind of martyr. That's especially kids if they kill themselves after receiving some kind of therapy from religious households where they were supposed to change their orientation. And then they commit. So that's literally like being thrown in the Colosseum and eaten by lions because the Romans put you in there because you're a Christian. It's like the same thing to them. Do you understand? 
And so that's reasonable. That's not crazy. Okay? That's, if, like if I held that view, that's exactly what I would think. It's completely consistent within the logic of the movement. Does that make sense? Okay. So one, one is it'll help you from saying stupid, simplistic things and that will not hurt us as much. Okay? And then secondly, it, you won't face the false stress on your own emotions and on your own faith. Like you'll feel freer. You'll be like, I don't, I don't think I'm better than these people. Like I, like I believe we're all broken. And what will happen is your, your conception of sin will deepen. Then your, your understanding of your own sin will deepen. And then like, you'll be a lot more focused on the stuff Jesus needs to do in you. And it'll take away a lot of judgmental energy, you know, which will be nice. Okay, so moving on. How are we doing time-wise? I can't see a clock, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> huh? Left? Oh, gosh. Okay. Let's go a little faster. Okay, two. Love is a mandate. And this includes LGBT people. Okay. Now, you might be like, Nick, that's so obvious. It's like so obvious the Bible says to love people everywhere. Okay. It does say that. Now, here's one of the things. It, does, it, it also says, in almost all of those contexts, the context is other believers. I don't know if you know that. But in the vast majority of contexts of the Bible, where it says to love one another or love people or whatever, the immediate context is other Christians. And so to bypass that, I just decided to go just straight to... Love your enemies, okay? So, whatever it's the worst case scenario, Jesus is like, listen, you've heard it said, Moses said, um, love your brothers and hate your enemies. But I tell you, you, should, you need to love your enemies, love those who persecute you, love people who hate you. Like the pagans love that, like the people who like them. That doesn't say anything positive about you. That's just like the state of nature, right? You need to love your enemies. Okay, so point one, love your enemies. We're going to come to a definition in a little bit. Second, it is not your job or my job to judge the sexual behavior of people in the world. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 5, the context is most direct, directly the profound greed, as well as the sexual immorality. So, so there's sexual immorality in the church. And he's like, look, you've got to judge that. And then he says, listen, for those outside the church, listen, I never told you to judge them. Like that, if you believe in Jesus, certain things follow. If you don't believe in Jesus, those same things don't follow. Rosario Butterfield said it this way. She said when she was a lesbian atheist professor and this Presbyterian pastor wrote her a letter. He said, when I, yeah, I would have these conversations with him in the hospitality of his home and he never once talked about my sins, plural, until I understood the Christian concept of sin, principia. Right? Because if you tell a normal person who doesn't go to church and know their Bibles well about their sins, they'll just gonna, they're going to think you're being nitpicky and self-righteous because they don't understand the biblical concept of sin at all. Like, God is a king. This isn't his world. He doesn't have any right to tell us what to do. We get to tell anybody who we are. God doesn't get to tell us who... Like, it's, like all that is all messed up. And so if you're like, you've got these sins, they'll be like, what are you talking about? And so this pastor basically walked Rosaria Butterfield through what the scripture says about God's rule and about like, what sin is in principle and what idolatry is and how he was given to these sins. And then as once that concept was clarified, she said they could enter into a conversation about whether or not there were any sins in her life. And, and then she said, and then the other favor he did me was he never assumed that my greatest sin was homosexuality. He always assumed that my greatest sin was unbelief. Right? Which was his greatest sin and idolatry. Okay, so, so that was the second one. Third is, Christians do not believe in coercion. We don't believe in coercion. And in, when I go to India, it's actually illegal for me to reference divine displeasure in trying to lead people to Christ. It's illegal. 
Okay? And so some of the pastors there are like, we can't even preach the gospel anymore. Because, the, like, the, you know, it says it's illegal to talk about hell. I'm like, is hell the only way you know how to preach the gospel? Like, like for sure there's hell. And, like, for sure there are divine threats. And those are real. And maybe in some cases you need to share them, especially within the church as you disciple people. But there's, like, a thousand ways to preach the gospel. And it, there is a way to use hell to reckon seriousness into the conscience of people. And there is a way to use hell to seek to coerce people out of fear to believe in the gospel. And, and that's a fine line between those two. It's our job to share and preach the gospel in such a way as to commend the truth to every man or woman's conscience. Whatever you do, you should not seek to overwhelm or overpower the human conscience. They should come to Jesus for the right reasons. And those right reasons should be rooted in persuasion, not pressure. Does that make sense? And so, okay, so you got to have that in your mind. And then last is... We're, com we're commanded to go to people and to become as like them as we can. Okay, now I will confess to you. Okay, so somebody asked me the other night. Um, they were like, you know, I hear you go to India a lot. You must love India. Like, do you love the culture and the food and all that kind of stuff? And I'm like, I mean, no. I mean, I would never vacation in India. Like, it's not, like that's not why I go. I go because I partner with people who are seeking to bring the gospel to that country, like I, like I can, like it's a great culture and everything, and people there seem to really like it. But like I don't, like I don't connect with it that deeply. But it's fun. Like I, like I choose to love where I am. I practice the disciplines of cheerfulness. I, I seek to find what enjoyment is present. But I don't, like I wouldn't be like, baby, we've been married twenty years. Let's go to like you know central India in the summer. You know, like I would never do that, right? <laughs> But when I go, I want to go to serve Jesus and I want to try the stuff that's there and I want to do the things they do and I want to enjoy the things they enjoy and I want to bring my heart along to enjoy what they enjoy because it's my job to become all things to all people. Right? Now, that's true of people you don't like. Right? Like, and for some of you, it's Democrats. Right? For some of you, it's Republicans. For some of you, it's LGBT people. For some of you, it's like... People like a tiny bit more conservative theologically than you that you just want to throw under the bus so people on the left of you don't hate your guts, right? We all have people that we're uncomfortable like becoming like. And, okay, so if you put all those together, hold on, i got to read this off my paper. You would get something like this. Therefore, we are to love our enemies without pronouncing or executing judgment on them as unbelievers in ways that commend ourselves to their consciences by becoming as much like them as we are, as is possible in love. Okay? That's the call. That we love our enemies, not pronouncing or executing judgment for those who don't believe, in ways that commend ourselves to their consciences and be, by becoming as much like them as possible. And by recognizing that when people come to faith, you need to deal with sin in order. Okay, so I remember, um, I think it was Mike Bullmore who said there was this couple that was living together that started coming to one of their, like, seeking Christianity Bible studies. And they became Christians, like, three weeks into the Bible study. And um, they, uh, you know, he, he heard them, you know, using the Lord's name in vain a little bit and doing some other things and smoking outside the church and blah, blah, blah. And so um, he felt kind of convicted after they'd come to Jesus for a couple of weeks to, like, actually, like, deal with some sin, right? And so he said, he said, so I confronted them, and he said, do you know, what did I say, right? And the assumption is, is that most of the Christians' presence were, were like, well, you tell them they're not supposed to be living together. They, you can't be a fornicating, right? And that's important to tell people that. And he said, he said, so I, I said, listen, 
you guys have come to Jesus, I think it's important for you to start to understand what it means to obey and follow Jesus. And one of the most important things about following Jesus is to realize that God's name is holy. Like, it, it stands for his character and who he is. He should have a certain kind of reputation, and therefore his name must be used in a very specific kind of way, right? And so he, what he went after is that the guy was saying Jesus, like, wrongly. Because that is the most important thing. Like, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Comes before, don't commit adultery. Because you're never going to convince anybody to stop committing adultery if they, if they think God's reputation and name is used vainly. Like, if God doesn't matter, people will do what they want with what's in their pants. There is an order to sanctification. The first step is God is holy, right? And you've got to help people get that. And then when they get it, you can move on to the next thing. Do you understand? Because if you ask an LGBT person who accepts Jesus to come and be like, okay, you need to break up with your girlfriend this week. Like, that's not going to go well. And it's not what you should do. Because, and here's why. Just ask yourself, do you do that with everybody else? With everybody else in your church that has all kinds of personality flaws that are deeply sinful that they don't want to deal with, do you go, hey, listen, I saw the anger. Look, you were yelling at your kid. I saw that. Like, I mean, quit wearing those, you know, plunging V-necks or like muscle showing. Or like, you're immodest. Like, you, you don't do that. So get it in order and then work through in a progression, preferably in a loving discipleship-based relationship that's usually one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, let's keep moving. All right, so what are some ways that we can be in, um, intentional about loving LGBT people that's specific to them in certain ways. Learning some terminology is helpful. I kind of ran out of time to go through a lot of that stuff. You can get my notes if you want. But there's just like, they don't like the word homosexual, for example. They, uh, one of the side B gay Christians said one time that when they hear Christians say same-sex attracted or homosexual instead of gay, it feels to them like a refusal to speak English. Now... <laughs> I, like, I don't really like that statement. I think it's a little unnecessarily pejorative. It is funny. But like, that's how they feel. So in situations where you can say gay, like they like it when you say gay, right? And then if you have to be specific and say same-sex attracted, then maybe you have to. They do not like home gay lifestyle, right? Like You don't go around being like, Man, I've been living my straight lifestyle. You know? like, because, listen, pastors and prostitutes today will be living the, gay life, or the straight lifestyle. You understand? Like, there's a bazillion straight lifestyles. And there isn't really literally one gay lifestyle. Like, especially if you look statistically, lesbians and gay, and gay men are, like, completely different creatures. Like, how they behave are very different. And how bisexual people is very different. And, like, it's not, it's not anywhere near the same phenomenon. All right? So, in fact, it's pretty likely that there isn't one homosexuality. That there's, like, numerous homosexualities. And all of them behave very differently. So there really isn't a gay lifestyle, just like there isn't a straight lifestyle, and they don't really like that phrase. So there it is. Okay. Act the opposite of the way um, they're predicting. Right? So there, Preston Sprinkle talks about a lesbian couple that went to church to get a story and a testimony about how badly they would be treated at church. Right? <laughs> and they go in, and they were treated great. People were nice and loved them and had real conversations with them, and they became Christians. And it was like, it was, he's like, Right? Just like think about think about how they expect you to treat them and then just do the opposite. And if you can't connect with that, just imagine that like you're a Democrat and you're going into a Trump rally and how you expect you would expect to be treated. Or if you're a Republican and you like walk into a, a Berkeley lecture on queer theory with a MAGA hat on and how you would expect to be treated, right? And then like just channel that and do the opposite. You understand? It's simple. It's never really not that hard. Okay. Have relationships and actively interact with LGBT people. Now, you might think, well, I don't, 
All I'm saying there is just like, everybody knows when you're awkward and don't talk to them. Everybody knows that. So just like, you can be like, I'm sorry I'm about to have an awkward conversation with you. I don't know what, I don't know what to start talking about. But, um, and then come up with something. Be like, I like gardening. Do you like gardening? Like I, <laughs> did you watch the Super Bowl? Did you, I like Cheetos? Do you like Cheetos? Like, just like show that you care. I mean, right? And, and then if they don't, I always say with new people at church, anytime you have a conversation with people at church, right? Ask them two questions and see if they throw the tennis balls back. If they do, they want to talk. And if they don't, they don't want to talk. So if they don't want to talk, you'd be like, well, I'm really glad you're here. It was good to see you. And then you walk away. And if they talk back, then they want to talk to you. And then, if you can get them to say two sentences, if somebody else says two sentences to you, and you can't find something to pick up on to turn the conversation in the direction they want to go with it, and they want to talk about, you're not listening very well. Okay? And then just take it in a direction they want to talk in. Right? Okay. Um, be yourself, but be thoughtful and humble. Um, start with as much love and personal acceptance as you can. Right? And if they do something that seems to be trying to force you to accept something you can't, there are ways to punt or move, move sideways. And, the, and sometimes it's okay to provisionally accept something in a certain context. Don't, like, you don't have to get too legalistic about it. Like, like, for example, there are situations where I've said gay because I knew the other person wanted me to. I knew that it was an equivocation, that they were packing things into that word that I didn't believe. But like... I had to either say that or shut down the conversation. And so I paid the chips to play. And you, listen, you, but I would say this. You, you should never disobey your conscience. To disobey conscience is neither right nor safe. And you would never ask them to. And sometimes when um, I've had LGBT people try to get me to do something that I couldn't do in good, good conscience, I explicitly say that to them. I said, listen, in our relationship, I will never ask you to violate your conscience because I believe it's the most sacred thing about you. But you're doing that to me right now. And I don't think it's right. Is there another way that we can talk about this or engage on this? And sometimes, like, it'll, almost nobody says that to them, so it'll usually catch them off guard. And, anyway, okay. um, let go of your good reputation with other people in the church who will think that you're letting down the side. Just make sure you're not actually doing it. Right? If they're actually critiquing you, listen to them. But if they're just being mean, then you just got to let it go. Um, remember the goals you do with Jesus, not heterosexuality. That's really important. Butterfield says that about the pastor she met with. She's like, he never acted like the goal for me was heterosexuality. He always acted like the goal for me was to belong to Jesus and to know him. Right? And then be a safe person. Um, exhibit public kindness towards LGBTQ people. I try to not say, I, I try to be really careful when I say, and you should be really careful because like you'll say, you say one thing, man, and that's, that spreads. And so your reputation on that, you've got to be really careful about. You're going to, listen, you're going to get slandered for doing the right thing, so don't add more like, good disapproval for doing the wrong thing, right? Okay, and then um, listen as best as you can, and then don't ever laugh or tell jokes, gay jokes. Don't ever, ever do that. And, listen to me, don't ever laugh or tell gay jokes because somebody else you're with did it, even if they're the only person and you feel safe doing it. My best friend in seminary, my best friend, made, like, five gay jokes in my presence, like, the first two weeks I knew him. Like, just ha-ha, gay, gay jokes. And, like, a couple of them were kind of funny, and I snickered a little bit, but I never made one back. Like, ever, right? He came out a year later, went to study Foucault at Oxford, and, like, we're friends to this day. And I think one of the reasons he always knew I was a safe person, I think he was baiting me. I think he was looking to see how I would respond if I would ever come out to him, or he would ever come out to me. 
And so like, even if it's like just you and one other person, you think you're safe, just don't, just don't do it, okay? All right. Sorry, yeah, thank you. All right, so three, we need to grow deeper and stronger in terms of being able to bear the way bigotry and scorn. Okay, listen, um, Jesus said that if they hated him and they called him demon-possessed, they were going to hate us and call us demon-possessed. That's the world. That's not gay people. Some gay people are part of the world. That's everybody, okay? Like, you should expect to not be loved. Do you understand? If you think people are going to love you, that everybody's going to love you, like, you're wrong. That's not going to happen. In some proportion of your faithfulness, even if you do everything right, and you listen, and you use the right terminology, and you bend over backwards, and you make sacrifices for people, not just LGBT people, but like the, all of the people who would be in the world, according to Scripture, at some point, someone is going to bite you. Okay? That's just going to happen. And it may destroy your career. It may permanently destroy your reputation. It may just destroy your like, ability to get okay on your dissertation. Like, I mean, it, it's serious, really serious stuff. And so here's the thing. You can't stop that. All you could be is strong enough to bear it. Okay, like if I tell you you're going to get punched, and you're like, well, can you teach me to dodge so I don't get punched? I'm like, no. No, it's a boxing match. You're going to get punched. Okay? So like, what you got to do is you got to learn how to block and take a punch. Like if you're a Christian, you have to spiritually, personally, in terms of your character and who you are, be ready to take punches and not reflexively throw punches back. Okay? That's one of the reasons why God makes sanctification mandatory. You must grow in Christ. Why? Well, because you're supposed to be like Christ. But also, becoming more like Christ makes you stronger. Jesus is incredibly strong. It, said, it says in Isaiah, I want to say it's chapter 63, where it says, like, instead of ashes, he'll give them a crown of glory. The very end of it, it says, they will be called oaks of righteousness. That was the strongest tree known in the Levant, in the area of Israel. It was, it was the strongest, most enduring, most lasting. The only, the only tree that would live longer than that were um, olive trees, but olive trees never got more than about 13 feet high, so you couldn't use olive trees, for example. They were powerful. And sanctification, got, substance, makes us strong. And the first reason you have to be strong is so the vice doesn't crush you. When Christians disapprove of what you're doing, and when LGBT activist people disapprove of what you're doing, and people take shots at you, and they bite you, and they push you, you've got to be strong enough to bear it, or it'll crush you. And crushing you means either living like crushed down in your faith, or losing your faith altogether. Okay? Because make no mistake, your faith is at stake in this. Your whole faith is at stake in this. Right? Now, secondly, Jesus would like you to feel and be blessed. And the only way that you can exist in the scorn of the bigotry you will receive is if you are strong enough that the vice doesn't even feel that strong anymore. Right? If you die to your reputation, if you die to your income, if you die to your possessions, then the threat of losing them cannot crush you like it used to be able to. If you die to your good reputation and your good name, and for people to think you're as good a person as you think you are, which of course you're not as good as you think you are, right? But even wanting people to think you're as good, if you let that go, they, they can't crush you with it anymore. If you really take up your cross and follow him, you will grow strong enough that not only can you take the punch, but it's like it, it becomes more and more like, like a kid is punching you, and you're like, oh, I'm training you, that's good. Right? 
And then, ultimately, the goal is to turn the tide backwards. It's to be so strong that there's no vitriol in you. There's only love and the truth spoken in grace, in careful love. And that we love each other within the church and we love our enemies as ourselves. And we become peacemakers because Jesus says that peacemakers will be called the sons and daughters of God. Right? The greatest promise in the Beatitude is for peacemakers. Right? They will be the sons of God. And of course, daughters is implicit. And so that is our goal. And that can only happen, not if we become like nicer. Like you, you, listen, you will never be a cool enough Christian to not get hammered on this. Quit thinking that you can like wear tight jeans and like speak in little like modern hipster tropes and like have the right stuff gel in your hair and then like people will let Christianity pass. They will never let Christianity pass. There is no vocabulary that you can come up with that will make the gospel not an offense. You can still wear the hipster pants. Like, it's fine. I just think it's hard to conceal a weapon. But do what you want. Right? But the point is that we have to become strong in God. And then, in 1 Corinthians 9 fashion, yes, become as like your neighbors as you possibly can. And if that's looking like a hipster, then God help us all. But do it, right? That's fine. Okay, let me end there. What? We have about 10 minutes for question and answers. There's more stuff I can say, but whatever. Let's see if we've got questions. Only the bold get to play, yeah. I have a, I like to go and work out and I have a, oh, I'm sorry. I have a, I like to work out and I have a trainer. And the first thing that he said was that, you know, I'm walking on the gay pride day. And I, and, and inside me, I, I kind of crawled. You know, this thing kind of maybe, like, I, I don't even want him as a trainer no more. But, but God came in and said, well, listen, you know, um, who do you claim to be? You know, what are you? Mm-hmm. So, so that came in, and, and so I started, I actually had to break, um, I actually wept over this guy, because inside of me was that I'm not understanding, but he's lost. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to have the answer here. Mm-hmm. And as me not having the answer, I had to go in that place of humbleness to find that, that particular character that I didn't want to have, because yeah. I don't like humble pie. Yeah. And so that not wanting humble pie was making me look at this, this individual as being lost. And where yeah. is he going? Because if I have the answer, I have to step through that threshold. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm praying about this, and so I, I came to him, and I said, you know, I have a book. It talks about absolute love. It talks about forgiveness. It talks about the man who you really are. And I looked at him, and I challenged him. I said, you know, you pressure me to do these things this hard work in this place. And I asked the same of you. And he said, yes. And I says, good, I have a book for you. And he asked me, well, what's the name of the book? It sounds really good. And I said, basic instructions before leaving Earth. <laughs> and he, he says, who takes the book? How do I approach it? Yeah, well, you better write below the letters Bible, basic instructions before leaving Um Yeah, li- listen. Especially in a post-Christian culture, a cult, if you're in a culture where people are not naturally Christ-haunted, so like I did, I did ministry in the South for seven years, okay? Like basically I'd, be, I, I'd go to somebody who wasn't a believer and I'd say, listen, you know you're supposed to be in church, don't you? And they're like, yeah. I mean, that was like literally still half the population who didn't go to church was still Christ-haunted. And you just had to be like, look, Jesus loves you, man. Just like, just come back. We love you. It's, it's a, it'll be a beautiful thing. And they're like, I know. And they like, honestly, God, half of them would show up in church the next week, Right? 
That's not going to happen here. Okay, like, people think you're wicked for being a Christian. Okay, so like, there's a whole, so I can't, there is no cookie cutter, right? So you got to do the best you can, right? Somebody says, hey, welcome to Gay Pride Day. Well, it's their holiday. Thank you. Just say thank you. They're being nice to you, right? Um, I will say this about gay pride. In my mind, I just insert the word courage when they say pride. Because they don't know the biblical theology about pride. So they're not trying to be as idolatrous as possible. What they're saying is, this is how we deal with fear, feelings of fear and feelings of inferiority that people put on us. And so we deal with that with this thing we call gay pride. And what they mean is essentially gay encouragement and gay courage. And I'm for courage. I'm for courage. And so I would love to redirect how they find that courage. But I'm not against how they deal with the crippling insecurity and inferiorities and fear that they naturally feel as a super minority. And so like, part of it is just try to, with love, try to look at the thing and reconceptualize it yourself. rather than Because the first thing Christians like to do is, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Stop. Okay, of course, everything's wrong. Okay? Right? Like my, as my kids know. Right? So the point is... <laughs> you got to try to reconceptualize it as Jesus would conceptualize it positively. Is there, any, is there any good here? What story are they telling themselves? Can it have a happy ending in Jesus? Like, how do you work this? And then you just do the best you can, right? All right, anybody else? Yeah. Like, oh, and try to make them short questions because we've only got like six minutes left. So, okay, guys, no monologues, please. I haven't taught Aaron yet that you never let go of the microphone when you're leading a question thing. Just so all you know that now, if you're ever the question person, you never let go of the microphone. In other words, we, it seems to be more accepting within the Christian community almost that we don't talk about heterosexual yeah. sin we're, and we treat homosexual sin like this huge thing. Right. right. Absolutely, Mike. Yeah, so I try to do about 101 ratio for heterosexual sex versus non. So like, by, okay, so like 85% of evangelical people in their 20s are having sex. You need to stop, okay? Y'all need to stop. How in God's name do I tell a 24-year-old gay man that Jesus is calling him to live, to die to himself and to live a dangerous life of covenantal friendship and discipleship towards the mission of making disciples when you're all screwing each other. It's impossible, right? Like, we all have to do the thing. Or you can't, you can't ask, like, think about this. Gay people give up the most, okay? Like, let's quit playing around, right? Transgender people and gay people give up the most because if you have an unmovable same-sex attraction and you can't marry or have sex with someone, okay? You got one option. You've got lifelong celibacy. Okay, Jesus said the most, the most sympathetic and pessimistic thing about that he ever said about godliness. He says, listen, I don't know if you can accept this, but anybody who can accept it ought to. <laughs> it's in Matthew 19. It's like really pessimistic. He's like, listen, like I get, like people are like, look, if it's, first he says, you can't get divorced. He's like, the big guys are like, look, if you can't get divorced, why even get married, right? And then he's like, look, some people are eunuchs for the kingdom. Some people are just born that way. Some people accept it for the kingdom of God. Anybody who can accept this teaching ought to accept it. Now, he wasn't saying it's voluntary, right? It's not voluntary. But what he is saying is he's saying, look, look I, get, like, I, I get how hard this is. If you and I are going to look gay and lesbian people in the face and transgender people in the face and say, this is what discipleship looks like. This is the costly, self-dying walk towards the God who defines you and you don't define yourself, we, we had better be carrying our 20-pound backpacks if they're supposed to carry a 100-pound backpack. And we better be asking them what we can take out of their backpack and put in ours. 
Because it says in Galatians 5 in my Bible that you are to bear each other's burdens. Not look at that gay guy and be a little like, I don't want to be your friend. No. No, it's your job, dude, to be his close friend because he needs intimate male friendships. And he, he probably at some point is going to feel like he's in love with you if you're a really good friend of his. And you're going to have to deal with that. And it's fine. Like, he can't stop that. If I was really close friends with a girl, like another woman, and like we were really good friends and she was trying to give me the intimate, non-sexual friendship that I need as a human being, like what do you think is going to happen? I'd fall in love with her. Of course I would. Like I have male gay friends who have struggled with romantic feelings towards me. Of course they do. That's not weird. It's predictable. You should be flattered, kind of. <laughs> right? But like if, if you can't get over that, then what? what's... What are we going to do? Like, what are they supposed to do? Right? So, yeah, we get it. Like, obviously the biggest sin epidemic in the church is no-fault divorce. There's no question about that. There's no question about that. And then it's heterosexual fornicating, probably, or sexual assault, depending on what you think the rates are and then where you would put that. Probably sexual assault and rape would be the top just because of the intensity of each offense. But there's so much no-fault divorce, and that creates so much carnage, just divorce that's unbiblical. And then probably all the fornicating. Like, homosexuality is like way, way, way. It's symbolically big, kind of, because people use it to break up all these other categories around sexuality. The biggest problem with LGBT politics is that it tells non-gay people they can do whatever they want. Because, like, if we get to... Because the reason why you think you can fornicate with whoever you want is because you believe gay people can do whatever they want. Because you told gay dudes that they can have sex with whoever they want, you can have sex with whoever you want. Right? That's... Come on, let's quit playing around. That's what's happening. Like, the whole LGBT thing, like, we didn't, all, we didn't all become enlightened overnight. What do you think? All these men were just like, yeah, gayness is awesome. No, there's an incredible amount of homophobia. People think it's really gross. But, here, but men will never miss an opportunity at responsibility-less sex, okay? We will never miss an option to have sex, okay? And if this will buy us some sex, we will do it. That's probably a little controversial, what I just said. <laughs> It may not be entirely true, but there is probably some truth to it. Okay? Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. And in your practice as a Christian, we really should be on about heterosexual sin first, and we also should be on about purity inside the church for those who claim to believe in Jesus and who have been promised the Holy Spirit and who have been told what the flesh is and isn't, and know what the fruit of the Spirit is, and the, the deeds of the flesh are obvious, and that we have the church to help bear, carry our burdens, and that we're free in Christ to walk in virtue. Like, we have this inheritance. If we will not use it, how could we possibly ask anybody else to do anything? That's one of the reasons why godliness in the church is the foundation of evangelism. You can have a revival and you can try to get people to church. Everybody you lead to Jesus is going to leave your church the minute they come in and meet the Christians. Satan is already working hard enough to show people that normal godly people are ridiculous. Like if you've ever read the first couple screw tape letters. Like, you know, somebody's going to come into your church and like, I'm going to be wearing like non-matching clothes and Satan's going to whisper to that guy, look at that guy in the pre He's ridiculous. His, and so his faith must be ridiculous. There's already all that ridiculous internal, like demonic, like fuzzy creating lies going on. Don't add to it actual ridiculous ungodliness, especially within a self-righteous spirit in the church. Right? And so that's one of the reasons why like for years at High Point, I've just been on about, look, you guys, we have got to follow Jesus actually. Like for we have to become people of substance. Alright guys, I hope this was fun and helpful and informative and <laughs> stimulating. Now remember, 
Just remember, I am not an errant. Okay, like I may have said a bunch of stupid stuff. Okay, you need to think about it and test it, have conversations with each other, and take the best. Okay, it's like as you used to say in the South you eat the watermelon, you spit out the seeds, you eat the ribs, you spit out the bones. Okay, God bless you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.